Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. I'm Richard Walensky. This is KPFA's Bay Area Theater podcast, featuring stage reviews, along with extended versions of interviews heard on Arts Waves on Cover to Cover. Welcome to Arts Waves. I'm Richard Walensky. My guest is Pam McKinnon, who is the artistic director of ACT. Pam McKinnon is also director of Seascape by Edward Albee. Seascape has just opened and will be running through February 17th. You won a Tony for directing the revival of Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, and you've directed virtually all of his plays. I think he wrote 37 plays. This will be the eighth play of his that I've directed and the 11th production because I directed a couple plays of his more than once. What do you see as your favorite play to either watch or direct by Albie? I guess the one I'm working on right now, Seascape. It's a movable feast. When I'm in rehearsal, that's the one that I'm, of course, you know, wrestling with in conversation with. So that's the present tense favorite. Let's talk a little about Seascape. This is a very strange play. A couple on a beach and then coming out of the water are two lizard people who speak English. What exactly do you look at as a director and is there any way you tackle Albie different from the way you tackle other playwrights? No, I tackle him as if he were a writer in the room with me, which he was when at times when he was alive. I worked on a lot of brand new plays of his. So as someone, I mean, I'm interested in tackling the action of a play. With Edward's plays, sometimes the language in the wrong hands can get sort of elegiac. And so part of my job is to really ground it in like, what is that half-page monologue doing? What are we doing? What is the action of the play? But that's how I approach any play. And, you know, any good writer should have themes running through it. But ideally, they're not, you know, it's not about being didactic. It's about grounding it in the present tense moment among the people on the stage. Well, when you're looking at Seascape, the curtain opens, what do you first see? A large sand dune and a man dozing on the beach. And then a woman enters. She looks at a painting that she's been working on. She looks at the horizon. She climbs the dune. And then a conversation starts. The end of Act One, they're joined by another couple, another couple who are coming out of the sea. It gets surreal, but there's a certain part of Albie which is always surreal. Yeah, that's right. I mean, even Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, which is, you know, a play a lot of people know from the Mike Nichols movie, but, you know, a fantastic stage play, is that post-party party between those two couples and Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf gets drunker and drunker and later and later. It gets surreal as well. I mean, there's, there's stuff said that wouldn't be said at noon that gets said at 4 a.m. And I think we've all been in sort of, you know, moments in our lives that feel a little on shaky ground, that feel a little surreal. So this is Seascape, you know, he takes it to an extreme because in a play world you can. And it's about the evolution of relationships, the evolution of a marriage. It's two couples going through time together and their marriage is evolving. And so he's taken, I guess, that 
word, which can be a metaphor as well, and pushing that to an extreme. So this is a, 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 at the end of the second act, lizards coming up from you know the deep, dark sea onto land, and they're kind of in flux. They're in a debate what to do next as a couple. When you had a chance to talk to Albie, did you try to discuss themes or were you just more or less working on the basic staging? I mean, we discussed character. We discussed action. Like any great artist, he had some obsessive themes and a lot of his plays center around you sort of your, you know, truth and lies, center around going through time, center around the the finite time that we have on this planet and what to do with it. We didn't really discuss that. That's in his plays. And nor did we discuss staging. I mean, we discussed action. Certainly at times we discussed what the set would look like, depending on the play, because he definitely had a visual eye. He wrote with a particular kind of theater in mind. He wasn't someone to, you know, put pen to page and just start writing about themes. He was someone who knew his plays would be in a box or in the round or, and he wrote with that in mind. And so was a very visual writer, but yeah, character and set and action. Did he ever talk about the response to some of his plays or not? Not so much with me. I mean, you know, he he loved his plays, you know, and he, like any any writer, thought of them kind of as his children. And some children made good livings. <laughs> Other children seemed to still be living at home. But I do feel that, you know, he extended the American playwriting canon. Some of his less produced plays are just brilliant. You know, even putting Seascape, it's it's a play that some people know, but not that many people have seen. But but activating it um, through rehearsal has just been really exciting. There's there's a masterful hand at work, even you know, and that's a horrible word, even in the plays that sort of aren't in regular rotation. Is it one of those plays where, as the rehearsal goes on, suddenly you, over and over, keep finding? new little things that you hadn't thought about before is one of those absolutely but 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 all good plays are you know and i i really try to use rehearsal for myself i'm you know i'm the proxy for the audience so i you know have have both the responsibility and the opportunity in seeing and as importantly hearing it's rehearsal after all hearing the language over and over again to make it more specific and to sort of learn, oh, in order to get to a certain place, what do we need to put in place the beat prior? You know, sometimes we're working on something and it feels hard, it feels hard. And quite often we uncover that the problem, I just made air quotes on radio, but the problem isn't what we've built in that moment, but it's the setup. It's the moment prior. So that's, you know, what you do in rehearsal. That's why you go back over and over again. It's not about staging. I mean, staging is the result of action. So it's figuring out what is most active and then putting that into place. And speaking with various directors who've worked at the Geary, in particular, Carrie Perloff, but also Loretta Greco, it's a particular challenge because of the height of the theater and the fact that the people on the top are seeing, in some respects, a different play 
than the people in the orchestra. How do you, as a director, accommodate that? It has two balconies. It's a it's a space where you know the actors need to keep their chin up, and you know we have this sand dune that is tall. It's purposefully tall, so that you know is a way to activate levels. You want to think about that height and use it, but it's also an end space. It is a proscenium space, so the audience is all looking at this from one direction, different angles, but one direction. So at least that is a control. Sort of working in the round, done that in the past, and that's an even more slippery slope in that, you know, a laugh can land, you know, in, let's say, the North audience, and the South has no idea what's going on until you turn it around. So that's not the challenge of the Geary. But yeah, certainly. But it's but it's it's also a classic playhouse. I mean, I've done a lot of Broadway. Those are what those classic playhouses are. It's a thousand-seat theater. The playhouses of Broadway range between um, 780 and 1100. So it's it's right in the middle. Pam McKinnon, let's talk a little about how you came here. I mean, you've been a director for a long time. You've got awards. Your career has come up as a director. What prompted you to apply for this particular job? It's a new experience. Absolutely. Yeah, I've never I've never had an office. I've been a very successful freelance director, hopping from production to production, and there's something deliciously adolescent about that. Like my life is sort of in 10 week chunks. And, you know, I've been making a very healthy living, like all that stuff is great. And then at a certain point, you know, it's it's like delicious adolescence gets a little boring. And I, you know, I, I've, I've always thought about at a certain point, wanting to dig into an institution, wanting to, you know, yeah, commit, commit to a location, commit to an organization, commit to a theater community. And ACT has been on my radar as one of the great American theaters. I mean, um, living in San Francisco. I'm a, I'm a city person at heart. I was a kid in Toronto and Buffalo and spent you know my career in New York, spent a lot of my time in Chicago. I like cities. I think theater belongs in cities. I'm interested in you know the, the ecosystem of the arts organizations of a city. And the timing was right for this one. Well, now that you're here and you've been here six months with uh, before we went on the air, you said you took one break to do a show elsewhere. Uh, what is the challenge that's come up, you think, that you didn't expect? We talk a lot about organizational culture. This is an organization with a staff of about 100. And that's not a huge company, but that's a lot of people day to day, you know, and my life of predominantly in the rehearsal hall, that's sort of the ecosystem of what an organization is. And so now as a leader of a larger institution, it's all about scaling up what I believe in out of the rehearsal hall about, you know, conversation, about transparency, about sort of the best idea in the room wins, like all that rehearsal hall stuff actually scales up to an organization. But it takes time as you get to know people, as you get to know what this theater is to this city. I still haven't figured that one out. It's going to take some time. You know, six months is a blink of an eye in an organization. And of course, six months putting on a play is a lifetime. Your role is different as artistic director, which means you have to be part of it and not be part of it at the same time. Well, I'm very much part of it. it. It's just not, I'm not part of the hour to hour 
day-to-day creation of the art. But it certainly is a huge curatorial role. Who's going to direct? Who's going to design? So it's picking the plays. Who's going to direct? Who's going to design in consultation with who's directing? Um, very involved in the casting. I mean, it's it's building the ship and then putting another captain in place. I mean, I, you know, over the years have worked with artistic directors as a freelancer and had great relationships that have really, you know, helped. I think it's a fantastic moment when a artistic director comes in and gives you like the note that you haven't seen because you've been in the weeds. And that, you know, is now my job. And I feel, you know, very, um, that that's a huge responsibility and also really fun. Like, I, you know, there, there's some projects that I don't want to be in the weeds on, but I want to see. And also, you know, recognizing that there's some plays that I shouldn't direct, but I want to see as an audience member. I want to see as a producer. So how great to get to make those artistic marriages and like put them in motion and like, you know, to have also with ACT, you know, we have so much programming around the Young Conservatory and the MFA Conservatory. So bringing in directors as well as playwrights for those production opportunities also feels like a tremendous, tremendous boon because I can get to know people in sort of a lower risk, almost venue situation, and then hopefully pull them into working at the Strand, pull them into working at the Geary. It's a great way to build muscle. It feels very important and vital. Well, you've got two venues that ACT company uses, and then you've got two other venues that others use, being the roof and the costume shop. Are you ever planning to use either of those for what would be a more main stage kind of a show? Yeah, absolutely. That would be the hope. They're beautiful spaces. They're beautiful spaces, yeah. The roof is a black box, which is very different than either the Strand or the Geary. The roof theater's in the Strand Theater. It's upstairs, and it's a beautiful, flexible space. I mean, we use it primarily for workshops. We use it for rehearsal. We use it for events. And we use it for MFA conservatory and young conservatory productions. But it's a fantastic space. You're working right now on your second season because you worked on the first. Did you work in consultation with Carrie on this season that's happening now, or was this just, just you? This was just me. This current one is my inaugural season. Before we went on, you briefly talked about creating the season as a whole and trying to slot things and figure out how it works. What specifically were you looking at when putting together a season that included Seascape, her portmanteau, men on boats? It's about curating something that fits together. You know, you have all these puzzle pieces. So you have seven plays, five at the Geary and two at the Strand. And you want them to at times be in, be, be standalone. Certainly any, any person can see one show. But if you want a sweep of the season, you want it to sort of have some kind of handshake to handshake relationship. And it's not about necessarily uh, some kind of narrow theme. But what does excite me is to go from something like sweat which sort of at the core feels it is a deeply personal story, but also political, like, 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 like the politics of it is in the foreground. And then men on boats, you know, I think sort of the, the playfulness and the, the theatricality of bodies in motion is in the foreground. Now, Seascape, I think, sort of takes what 
is, is, is deeply personal in sweat and relationship oriented and puts that in the foreground. I sort of feel that that kind of political, playful and personal, all the shows have that in them and they foreground one at times and the two other, not themes, but notions sort of recede. And that became sort of how we talked about this current season. You know, so for instance, the great leap is around the corner. That's a basketball play, but it really is about fathers and sons. Her portmanteau is a deeply, deeply personal exploration of mothers and daughters. You know, so we have a father and son play at the Geary while her portmanteau, a mother and daughter play is running. You know, we sort of look at that, but also who are the artists that are really exciting that can like hold the Geary stage. So Loretta Greco and Lynn Nottage's Pulitzer Prize winning play Sweat. It's like, well, that demands a space like the Geary. It's fantastic in that space to have the opportunity to produce Infaniso Adofia's play, her portmanteau. It is a homecoming for her. She was an MFA conservatory graduate in 2009. So she was very much, you know, an actor in training here. She was in The Christmas Carol, you know, at the Geary stage. This is her artistic home. And 10 years later, bringing her back in, we've also um, commissioned a play from her. So, you know, she's, she's sort of back in our fold again. That also feels very exciting to have her part of my first season. Was it you that started that conversation or was it Loretta Greco? When I first got the job of artistic director here in late January, I knew that I wanted Loretta to be part of this season. You've known her for a while. I've known her for like over 20 years. And I knew that she had worked at the Geary very successfully. And also that the Magic Theater, yes, had a relationship with Infaniso and had produced previous plays of hers in previous seasons. And so talk to Loretta about the possibility of Loretta directing her portmanteau here. That was the play I was interested in producing and learning that Loretta had already programmed play number six in the cycle in old age at the magic. So then it became when in the calendar can we do them so that the Bay Area gets a little bit of story overlap. So that became the conversation. But she was just thrilled that I was interested in producing and, you know, and thinking about how to market and how to, you know, and we're sharing a director now. Victor Mayog is directing both. He's hopping right from opening her portmanteau to going into rehearsal at the Magic for In Old Age. And at first I wanted Loretta to direct Infaniso's play because I knew that they knew each other. But then when we decided to produce Sweat, I switched Loretta into that and then approached Victor. So a puzzle. It's shifting these puzzle pieces around. And as you shift, you, you also have to sign contracts, where, which means at some point it has to get written in stone and you have to publicize. Are you going to be able to pull it all together by, say, the end of February, you think? For the 1920 season, yes. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's it's challenging financially right now to bring it all together. We budget as we go along. And of course, that production budget, so each individual show budget, and then what we anticipate could be our subscription numbers, could be our single ticket numbers. So we also guesstimate some revenue. 
and then, you know, put together a slate of seven shows that then has to fit into our institutional budget, which includes an education department, you know, deeply involved in high schools and, you know, other, you know, the, the, the whole educational and arts ecosystem all over the city and the Bay, as well as the conservatory, as well as staff, you know, it's, so it, a produ- the, the ultimate production budget then has to be looked at in terms of the overall institutional budget. At a certain point, you're going, oh, my God, we have X amount of money and the set costs X amount of money more. How are we going to work this out? And that's when you go into overdrive to make it work. Yeah, to make it work. And also, like, like what are the stories that have to be told, you know, in 1920? Um, you know, and that also is a big guess, right? Because you don't know what the world is going to be. Pam McKinnon, that brings up a question. What is the relationship between what's happening in the world and what you're programming? I've talked to different artistic directors, and some of them say, we're just going to go ahead and do what we need to do. And other artistic directors are going, well, no, I want to make sure that this season reflects. I don't think I'm a, you know, ripped from the headlines kind of curator, kind of producer, but, you know, certainly I'm a political animal. And I'm interested in what is happening and how and how stories, you know, get viewed through a specific lens. I'm sensitive to that. We talk a lot about um, diversity of voices. We talk a lot about, you know, who are the fantastic women playwrights and what are the stories that, you know, are coming out of, you know, a very, very vibrant playwriting scene right now in this country. It is lowercase p political. Absolutely. And in terms of ensuring that there is diversity, whether it be of race, gender. Diversity of storytellers influences the stories on the stage. And I have seven main stage slots, and we want that. And even if it were, you know, all women, that also wouldn't be quite right. Like that would make us very, you know, us, I'm saying us because it's an artistic team, not just me, you know, as we're frantically reading and, you know, deciding what stories to put up there. We want the stories on ACT's stages to reflect this incredibly diverse city and these incredibly complicated times and to not have one point of view. How about a new play putting on world premieres versus putting on plays that have either been on Broadway or off-Broadway recently, and even classics. Are you kind of trying to figure out what number of each would go into a season? Not necessarily like like a real ratio like that, but I'm uh, most likely going to be directing a world premiere next season at The Strand, and that feels very important to me just as a as an artist but also the strand theater you know at the remby stage is a 286 seat house that cradles some risk for a you know a, a younger a younger playwright and also a, a brand new play and that kind of intimacy there are certain stories that thrive in intimate spaces that shouldn't be put in the geary and so i'm really interested in you know, continuing to make the strand that kind of new play gateway. And a world premiere seems like the logical next step. And I direct a lot of world premieres, so I want to continue that. You know, we also have the new strands 
new play festival. And so that is a great sort of incubation moment that happens in May and sort of pulling some of those projects out of that into production feels also like the next step. Pam McKinnon, the final show of the season is Rhinoceros by Ionesco. Is the cast set for that? No. Frank Galati, who is directing it, is uh, coming to San Francisco in a couple weeks to do some local auditions. The two men are set at this point. This is um, Frank Galati's adaptation of Ionesco's Rhinoceros, sort of a dream project of his. He's wanted to do it for a very long time, Mm. and he was able to do it at a theater in Florida, Asilo Rep. And a friend of mine, Matt DeCaro, a largely Chicago-based actor, was in it. And I got a call from Matt saying that he was in something very special. Could I come down to Central Florida? And I was like, no, I can't come down to Central Florida. But I did circle back when we were planning this current season to talk to Frank about would he want to continue working on it. So he's still in the throes of like, I mean, he's interested in making Daisy, the character of Daisy, fleshing her out, maybe adding some more songs to it. So, you know, it's it's still very much, you know, really exciting work in progress. And he was super excited to have Matt DeCaro and David Breitbart, who were the leads in Florida, to continue. And we said, yeah, let's move this all forward. You know, sometimes you don't want to, like, mess up something that is ongoing and just starting to build muscle. Let's talk a little about your origins. What got you involved in theater? I know that in junior high, you were part of a group, but you were in political science and suddenly you dumped everything and ran off to be in the theater. What well, happened? No, 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 no. So, I, so I, I acted as a kid and even in early college and directed a little bit in high school. And then at age 18 in college, decided to get to get serious. And so I started studying economics and political science. I took you know, a step away from what I then considered extracurricular activities. Then on the heels of undergrad, getting a, a degree in political science and economics, I uh, applied to some PhD programs in political science. I was interested in those stories. I was a storyteller, you know, and that's what the social sciences are. Also, my father, now retired, but was an academic in the social sciences. So it was sort of like stepping into the family business. So I started to pursue a PhD in political science. A couple years or a year and a half into that, realized, oh, now I have to get serious. Like I had to reevaluate that word. And it wasn't about like what I was doing. It was about Like my relationship to what I am doing is what's important in building a life. And political science, the questions were getting smaller and smaller at a time when the questions I wanted to ask were getting bigger and bigger. So I dropped out of a PhD program and returned to theater because the last time I felt really jazzed, really compelled, not merely about fulfilling assignments, was in theater knew I didn't want to be an actress, so I started to pursue directing. This was out in San Diego at UCSD. And how long was it before you came to New York? I guess I stayed in San Diego another couple years. Then I went back to one of my hometowns of Toronto for a couple years, and then New York. So I was in New York by the time I was 27. Pam McKinnon, when you're looking at ACT and it's open-ended, are you looking for long-term or just maybe three or four years? What do you think? You mean as artistic director? Yeah. Um, no, there's a there's a, a project afoot. You want to dig in. You want to you know sort of 
it's not about leaving a legacy, but it is about committing to an institution, you know, and Jennifer Bielstein, who's my executive director, who came in with me, you know, as soon as I was hired, I was part of her job search. You know, she and I are committed to this city, committed to this theater. We want to, we want this to be great. You know, I'm interested in the, like the national scene. I'm interested in ACT being part of American theater. You've been listening to an interview with Pam McKinnon, who is the Artistic Director of ACT, American Conservatory Theater. Seascape by Edward Albee, directed by Pam McKinnon, runs through February 17th. For more information, you can go to act-sf.org. I'm Richard Walensky on Artswaves.